dirt road in a gooseneck saddle up with me dry land in God's country crops far as I can see headlights on both ends of my day this country life is for me ride with us HPJ ride with us Folks, to HPJ Talk, the podcast from High Plains Journal, bringing the ag news and commentary of the week to you. I'm Jennifer Amlatsky, and I'm joined by Kayleen Scott. And this week, Kayleen and I are working with the rest of the journal team to put together the final touches on our Cattle U event here in Dodge City. But before we left, we had a chance to sit and chat with author Wes Jamison, who, together with Paul Copen, edited the book What Would Jesus Really Eat? The Biblical Case for Eating Meat. Over the past decade, the battleground over animal rights has moved quietly into the church pews without many of the faithful being aware it was happening. Jameson and Copen consulted with biblical scholars, historians, ethicists, and livestock producers for this book, which is now available online. So, ride with us as we devote this week's HPJ Talk to our conversation with Wes Jameson, and we ask the question, what would Jesus really eat? We'd like to welcome today to HPJ Talk, Wes Jamison, who is a co-editor of the book, What Would Jesus Really Eat? The Biblical Case for Eating Meat. Jamison, thank you so very much to, to coming on board to HPJ Talk today. Kayleen and I are really excited to talk to you about the book. This sounds like a great idea. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, as your grandma and grand- granddad and mine used to say, you never want to talk about politics and religion, and that's what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> we're going to talk about it all. <laughs> Let's just dive right in. <laughs> well, speaking of which, um, yeah, we are going to be talking about politics and religion today, and so if uh, our listeners hear of anything that they have questions about or comments, we really encourage you, please give us a call at one 800 Four five two seven one seven one, and let's chat about this. So let's deep dive in. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What prompted this book? Because <laughs> it's a, a pretty persuasive book, I'll say. I uh, well, first of all, I'm a, I'm a professor down in Florida, and over the course of my lengthy academic career, I've been very, very interested in how activist groups convince consumers how they use persuasive messages, how they go about convincing consumers uh, and persuading them to take certain behaviors. So I, you know, many years ago when I was working on my first doctorate degree at Oregon State, I studied the animal rights movement and its ability to persuade people uh, politically about its goals. And then as time went on, uh, I became ever more interested in their emerging use of religion to try to persuade religious people, particularly Christians or people who attend Christian churches in the U.S., that somehow eating meat, and in particular eating meat from high-productivity farms, was a sin. 
And being a Christian myself, I knew that wasn't the case. And having been an elder and a uh, pastor in a church, I also realized that was not true. And so over time, we wanted, myself and a colleague at my university, who's a theologian and an ethicist, wanted to try to put together a readily accessible book for people to defend themselves. Because, you know, if religion is the last refuge of scoundrels, the animal rights folks have been very sophisticated in selectively cherry-picking certain scriptures and, and certain historical sources and perspectives to try to take Christian ideas, change them, and make people feel guilty. Well, and and it's, one thing that book, oh, go ahead, go well, ahead. Well, and it's, it's very much, um, you know, we see the, the in the arms of the angels ads. We see Sarah McLaughlin and these sad, sad puppies it takes it to one more step, and it really gets into the church pews, doesn't it? Yes, it does, because back in the 1980s and 90s, philosophers in the movement realized that the last bulwark, the last levy, at least they believed at that time, keeping the animal rights movement from winning against animal agriculture was religion. This idea that somehow people were special and were given the right by God to use animals. And so they've, they've very purposely targeted churches and theology as a way to persuade people to feel guilty. Wow. You know, that's just going to, that, that's just kind of playing dirty pool, if you ask me, right, Kayleen? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you've got people that are, are wanting to be good. They, they're wanting to be faithful, good servants of Christ or, or whatever um, religion that they happen to be in. This book touches on the Bible. Are there, are there other faiths that, that have the same challenge with animal rights? Well, I would say the Semitic languages. So you have Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. Uh, You have both liberal and conservative strains of of all three of those religions. So in any of the liberal strains of Christianity and Judaism, you have this concentrated effort. Gotcha. There really hasn't been much attempt at to reach out for much to Islam for a variety of reasons, and one of the reasons is it can be a militant religion, and so uh, there's not been much outreach. Certainly liberal Judaism and liberal Christianity has been the focus. You don't have to in Hinduism, because it already has all kinds of prohibitions against animal use. Mm-hmm. Jainism, which is, a, which is a very, very advanced form of Hinduism, you don't, you don't even harm any animals. Uh, so their focus has been largely in Christianity and to some extent Judaism. There's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. And that's because the animal rights movement really only exists in affluent Western societies. And so that's where you find Catholicism, Christianity, and Judaism. You know, uh, there's not been any real efforts in third world countries or in places like that. And it just so happens that Christianity has a stronghold in Western countries. And so that's kind of where you see the focus is on those big three. Catholicism, uh, liberal Christianity, and liberal Judaism. It's kind of like what we hear, Kayleen, that um, animal rights are something as a first world problem. I mm-hmm. mean, people that are, are worried about what's on their plate, they have the luxury to worry about what's on their plate, right? Yeah. Yes, it's, not, it's, it's a variety of factors. It's not just that you have the affluence uh, and you're able to worry about the plight of animals. You also have what I would say a worldview of egalitarianism or equality. And so it's just a, it's a very subtle leap mm-hmm. that equality for women, equality for African Americans, equality for Native Americans, equality for animals. So you see it where you see affluence, 
this idea of equality. And another factor that has to that has to be in place is there has to be a high degree of pet ownership. That's in all of our research over the last 30 years. There has to be a high level of pet ownership in a, in a country or culture for animal rights to take hold because if you treat an animal in the home like it's a family member, you're automatically going to treat an animal on the farm very similarly and demand similar, somewhat similar treatment. And so, you know, that's what we see. It isn't just affluence. It's the anthropomorphism, isn't it? Yes, yes, exactly. I, I come from a farm background. Kayleen comes from a farm background. Um, we raise cattle. Kayleen has has um, owned ho- horses, and and you and your family, you have cattle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our our parents always stress that animals have a purpose. Um, whether some of them, like uh, like the singer said, some of them feed our souls, and some of them feed us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, I don't know if that's a a good way to put it or not, but um, you know, we we've, we've always had companion animals. Um, when we were in the middle of your press conference, I was the one that asked, what does this book look at companion animals and the use of them as far as working animals, whether they're, um, you know, drug sniffing dogs or canines for the, the, the police or uh, just a companion animal. What, what does the Bible say about that? Okay, the Bible doesn't, there's no concept of pet ownership in the Bible. There's no concept at all of companion animals in the sense where you're using them for companionship. That's really, really new, and it's sort of an antidote to disintegration of families and a lot of cultural changes that people view animals as friends and family. It does speak to beasts of burden and animals used in agriculture. Uh, Old Testament, by all means, use animals as beasts of burden and as tools. Uh, in fact, the entire perspective of animals in the Bible is that they're given to people to use to to enable people to develop creation and to worship God. And so it would be called an instrumentalist view. So mm-hmm. the Bible has tended to give an instrumentalist or view animals as tools, but it also gave rules in the Old Testament. You, uh, there is no definition, clear-cut definition of animal welfare or confinement or production practices in the Bible, but what it does say is take care of them. Uh, in the Old Testament, talks about making sure that they can eat, making sure they have water. In some instances, you want to give them the Sabbath off, which would have been Friday night to Saturday night for the Jews. Uh, in some instances, there were other um, there were other types of of allowances for the animals. New Testament doesn't speak to it at all. In fact, it's pretty clear you can eat whatever you want and use animals how you want, as long as you don't wantonly abuse them. And interestingly for your listeners, it doesn't define what that abuse is. It's a question of conscience. So what we have very clearly here is one set of aggrieved individuals trying to force their definition of appropriate production and treatment of animals on an entire segment of society, and the Bible expressly prohibits that. It's a question of conscience for the believer, for them to define what is abuse, what is stewardship, uh, things like that. In ag, we're always talking about sustainability and how farmers and ranchers need to improve, which they've always been sustainable. They've Mm -hmm. always done the best for the animals. They've always done for the best for agriculture. What about modern ag practices and confinement and feedlots? What I know there's nothing specific, but 
what about that aspect of production agriculture? Well, with sustainability, for the for the Christian, it, it comes down to a series of doctrines and theological worldviews. And I don't want to go into deep theology here, but you know, for people who would come from one certain view of of eschatology, which is the study of of future things in the Bible. They would say, by all means, you want to have sustainability because you want to leave the world in a in a good condition for your children and grandchildren, for those who are coming later. But you don't worry about it because the world's going to be burned up anyways uh, in in the second coming of Christ. So I, you know, when I travel the world, and I talk to Christians. They'll say, of course, we want to take care of our animals and our land for our future generations. But I'm not overly worried about it because I know how it's going to end. Uh, that tends to be the strain, is that you want to take care of what God has given you, the resources he's given you, in order to leave them for people coming after you. Both of you probably have, have grown up on multi-generational farming families, mm-hmm. and I know that ethic is still very strong. Mm-hmm. I want to leave something for my children and grandchildren, and oftentimes I want to leave it better than I found it. And so that's a very biblical biblical view, both from the Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, as far as sustainability, you know, that's another one. No, uh, uh, for your listeners' benefit, I used to be on the board of directors of the Leopold Center for Sustainable Agriculture at Iowa State. And even we had a hard time defining sustainability because the problem is for how long, for how many. So what you really want to do is just try to maximize the sustainability, although no system will last forever, and just trust God. Uh, but as far as sustainability, yeah, you want to, from the biblical perspective, you want to leave an inheritance for your children and grandchildren, and also you you don't want to do anything that would damage the capability to provide for people around the world. So when you talk about a, a CAFO or some sort of modern facility, by all means, I could make the point that the reason people are are offended is aesthetically offended by the by the scene. But you know, for instance, a, a feedlot that's that's a more efficient method of managed pollution that would be dispersion, dispersed cattle because it's uh, point source pollution. And so the case is made by Timothy Sow in our book. He makes a very good case as to why actually confinement is more in keeping with God's plan and better for the, and better for people than would be what we would call like low density organic. And by the way, certainly in the Old Testament, high-intensity confinement production of animals took place because God commanded the temple sacrifice, and that required over a million and a half animals. And there's no way you could produce and slaughter those animals without anesthesia, without confining them in a high-intensive method. So Mm -hmm. it's not condemned. You know, it sounds like it by using sound science and using a little bit of logic of doing more good for more people not only are we doing um, good things for the animals that are under our care but we're able to feed more people you know it's not just taking care of ourselves but we're able to to feed the hungry and clothe the hung and clothe the homeless and and that sort of thing and isn't that ultimately what christ commands us the two great commands, yes, the answer is yes. I don't need to go on, but I'm a professor, so I like to hear myself talk. The two great commandments are love your God with all thy whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. And our animals are not our neighbors. The Belgian Confession, which is a sort of a doctrinal statement coming out of the Reformation, and it's article number 12, makes it very clear from the Bible 
we are given animals to use so that we can worship God. And one of the, one of the ways we worship God is obey those commandments to, f- to feed the poor, clothe, clothe the homeless. Uh, people come first. Only people are created in the image of God, and so therefore they are our first concern. And modern agriculture, uh, modern agricultural technology, modern agricultural science allows us to feed more people, taking care of more people with less resources. And for me, that is the that is the definition of biblical sustainability: uh, doing more good with less resources. Uh, so I don't see any question, and neither do the other authors of the book. So you would say that animals don't have rights the same as humans. I think that's that's something that you touched on in in that press conference, right? And and I forgive me, I can't remember the term right now and off the top of my head. Animals don't have rights uh, because they don't have responsibilities, and so. They don't have rights. And from a Christian worldview, no, they do not have rights. They don't have any claim against human beings. In fact, they, make, they can make no claim against God. And so we are called to steward or take care of the resources God give, has given us, including animals. We may eat them with pleasure, with joy. We can raise them in doing so. We can do it with a completely clear conscience. But efficiency is a biblical concept. Our conversation will continue, but we want to remind our listeners we will have post coverage of Cattle U coming in the next few months in our print pages and online. We'll be chatting with industry experts about production and marketing, but we'll also finish up our event with final thoughts from Glenn Klippenstein of Protect the Harvest, which touches on what cattlemen need to know about animal rights agendas today. Look for that in an upcoming issue of High Plains Journal or online anytime at www.hpj.com. Well, let's let's circle back around to the book again. (laughs) Sometimes we go down rabbit holes, especially in our podcast. You and your editor, uh, Paul Copan, uh, you consulted with experts in the fields of Old Testament, New Testament, biblical history, agricultural production. That helped you in the layout of the book. Why was it important to go beyond yourselves and talk to these experts and bring as many people on board? What did they bring to the table for you guys? And, and what were some things that you learned from them? We wanted a comprehensive overview so we could create a re- readily handy toolbox for Christians or church attendees to defend themselves. Because it's very clear the strategy of the animal rights movement, they want to make people feel guilty. Mm-hmm. And we want to tell them, don't feel guilty, feel happy. And that's the biblical position. But uh, I don't, contrary to popular opinion in my family and those who know me, I don't know everything and neither does Paul. <laughs> so we wanted to consult people who knew more than us and had expertise. And we believe that the problem was multifaceted. For the person out there who wants a defense of why they feel good about settling into a barbecue rack of ribs uh, from a confinement farm, we, we found a professor, we uh, had a professor who studies rhetoric or the use of words in politics. Because the animal rights movement is very effective at taking words we've taken for granted and changing their meaning. And so he's an expert on that. We wanted, we wanted him to write a couple of chapters on how that happens, how words like liberty or freedom or rights or dominion are changed subtly. And so we think they're using language we've heard before, but they're really not. Then we wanted a section of the book to talk about the history of this. 
why are they attacking religion, how are they attacking religion, and what techniques and tactics do they use. Then we go from there to the Old Testament, naturally, it's the first testament in the Bible, with probably one of the, although he's old now, one of the foremost Old Testament scholars in North America, where he lays out, look, this is what Hebrew, the Hebrew text actually says. Yes, you can use animals. Then we go to the New Testament, where uh, Paul Copan is a New Testament scholar and ethicist. He lays out what the New Testament says. And then we use an ethicist who attacks the arguments of the animal rights activists directly. And although he's a Christian, he uses ethical arguments. And we finally end up with a pig farmer, of all people, who, who lays out a beautifully written chapter on why he views what he does as an act of worship. So we wanted to consult people throughout the food chain and throughout the sort of academic environment, all of whom agreed you may use animals with joy, without a guilty conscience, uh, for your pleasure. And that's why we wanted to do that, so that so that a person who picked up, it's a short little book, the person who picks it up could have a ready access to a toolbox of not just Bible verses, but also various arguments and understanding the debate. So what was the most unsettling thing that you found in your research? Was it stuff that was being said in children's sermons or sermons at the pulpit, full Sunday school texts or anything like that? Or... You know, because you're, you're a mom, Kayleen, and your kids go to vacation Bible school and, you know, Sunday school occasionally. And, mm-hmm. and that, I, I'm, I'm just an aunt. That disturbs me that, that, you know, animal rights people would have full-blown something or other in front of my, my littles. I don't know about you. Okay, I, I put it this way. Nothing surprises me about the animal rights movement anymore. <laughs> but when I was younger and less jaded, I would have been surprised at their their long-term strategy and the focusing of their resources to specifically get Sunday school materials, VBS materials, sermon materials into churches to influence them via the pulpits and their leaders about how to treat animals. That, to me, is very clearly pointed out in, in the scriptures as something to be avoided. Don't change the text. Don't mm-hmm. don't use it for your per- personal purposes. Mm-hmm. Let the Bible stand on its own. That was very surprising to me. And the level of resources and sophistication. for uh, how, how directly it opposes not only what the Bible says, but the history of how people have interpreted the Bible. How 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 brazen they are at changing certain words to mean different things than what they really mean. And then, you know, sort of proud, I'm not Jewish, uh, but as I, as I studied Jewish Old Testament history and the use of animals and talked with Walt Kaiser, the amount of slaughter required and commanded by God was immense. Clearly, the Lord is not offended by the death of animals. Mm-hmm. He kills them himself and then commands others to kill them in mass quantities. And by the way, Jewish slaughter prohibits anesthesia. So there is no stunning in the Old Testament as rabbis stand knee-deep in pits of, uh, pits of blood as they kill over a million animals who come from, from confined spaces. That really surprised me, the level of slaughter in the Old Testament. Uh, it was a symbol but nonetheless, God commanded it. So two things, the sophistication and the brazenness of the animal rights activists in attacking religion, and the Old Testament, how pervasive slaughter was. 
So you mentioned earlier that more liberal branches, more liberal denominations seem to fall a little bit prey to the animal rights message than others. Does it matter on the size of the church or if it's a country church or an urban church? What have you seen? Because, you know, our, our listeners and our readers are from across 12 states of the High Plains and they go from country churches all the way to, to larger mega churches type deal. What should they, what should they be on the lookout for and, and um, what can they do? Well, that's a complex question. I'll try to answer it three ways. First, what you see, when I say liberal churches, here's how I define that. Those churches that do not derive their, they don't take the Bible as authoritative in matters of faith and conduct. They have, they have over time come to reinterpret it for, for social gospel or social justice measures. So one, one will be a church that kind of has abandoned the Bible as an authoritative and errant source. Secondly, churches that have centralized authority. So when you have a synod, or you have, uh, uh, or you have, for instance, it would be Episcopalian churches have centralized authority, Methodist churches, Christian Reformed churches, Lutheran churches to some extent that have centralized authority. That's one. That's one pinch point whereby animal rights activists, if they influence the central authority on this, then they will pass down doctrines and materials to the smaller churches. So the next factor, the third factor, really is urban-rural. Churches, churches that are more connected to the land and production tend to be more conservative theologically on this issue, because if I've got someone who's working with cows for a living, I can't tell them they're intelligent reasonable, thoughtful beings with rights that they need to treat because people live with them every day. And there's a, there's a pragmatic common sense among people who work with animals that kind of guards against this nonsense. Mm-hmm. So rural churches tend to be more somewhat insulated from it. Also, where you have a larger degree of affluence isolated from the land and education not related to agriculture, those churches that are larger in cities tend to be more more amenable to this ideology. So what can people do? Uh, well, you know, it's self-serving. They can pick up the book, read it, <laughs> or they can read their Bible more, which would be a better than buying my book, or what they can do even is go to the Humane Society of the United States website under their faith outreach section and actually read and they'll tell you what they've done with each denomination they'll lay it out there for you here's what we're doing and what we've done so arm yourself with what the bible says arm yourself with with arguments and and how to defend yourself and then go and see what what these people are doing and you'll be pretty inoculated against this and then by the way if it comes to your church be willing to go and talk to the leaders of your church and say this is not so this Mm -hmm. simply is not true you know, this brings to mind, Kayleen, you and I, we both have families that are spread across urban and, and rural communities, you know, extended families. We're seeing that the nuclear family in, in farming no longer lives within a couple of mile radius of each other. You know, you've got maybe kids and grandkids living in the city, working in the city. Mom and granddad are, are still living on the farm. And yet we're starting to see that um, the younger generation is starting to have more influence on what happens on the farm, whether that's 
going into a no-till organic practice or whatever, um, or if it's, you know, we're getting out of the feedlot business because I I have moral, you know, objections to it, et cetera, et cetera. What would you say to a family, multi-generational family that has maybe a, a landowner aunt, let's just say, that lives in the city and, and is very much subscribed to this animal rights message and and how can they work together and keep the family unit together and still keep operating what's what's something that that you would you advise is that for me or kayleen <laughs> i was gonna say buy her out and get her get her away from there but that's just me <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, that's kind of a loaded question for a non-actual person like me. Uh, I, you know, truth in advertising, I grew up in a little beach town in rural Florida on the beach, mm-hmm. and I got into agriculture by accident. I went off to Auburn University many years ago to play sports, and I just needed a degree, and so I ended up with a poultry science degree and, and ended up studying agriculture. But I never lived on a farm, so I couldn't answer that authoritatively other mm-hmm. than this. Uh, nobody knows that the only constant in life is change like a farmer. And I tell all my friends who don't know anything about farming, imagine if you were hostage to the weather, to the markets. You know, it's a tough life, and change is the only constant. Same thing along with cultural societal change. But with that being said, arm yourself with the truth. And part of the frustration in agriculture, I found in my 30 years of getting to know agriculturalists around the country is they know what they believe they're just frustrated because they don't really know how to say it mm-hmm. it's just been taken for granted for so long yeah uh, you know farmers really are one of the backbones one of the vertebrae in the backbone of america and they've taken their position for granted for so long a lot of the commodity groups are really doing a good job in arming their young people on how to like uh ydlf young dairy dairy leadership initiative uh, but that's what I would say. Arm yourself with the truth and get used to the idea that you're increasingly going to have to defend that truth. But, you know, you all know this. Ultimately, the truth and scientific evidence tends to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, it tends to win out over time because it works. And uh, it's only going to take, as you know, a couple, some famines or some real food insecurity for this problem to go away. But that's what I would say, not having come from a farm, not having to deal with intergenerational issues or issues of people spread out, you know, everywhere from Chicago down to Southern Illinois, arguing over what they're going to do with the farm. Uh, But it's a complex problem. My heart goes out to farmers because they face so many circumstances outside their control. Yeah. You know, Kaylee, we were talking about that the other day, the, the, um, the people that go into farming and ranching are often more solitary thinkers. You know, um, they sit on a on a combine, they sit on a tractor, they sit on a horse, and they do a lot of thinking and they commune with God that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad used to say whenever he couldn't make it to church on Sunday because something broke down and he was feeding cattle, and mom, my mom played for church every Sunday, um, he'd say, you know what? I, I had my time with God. I was, I was out amongst the cows. I was yeah. out amongst his, his creatures. And, and you do that a lot too. I mean, with, with your family and your operation, you, yeah, I mean, we don't go to church regularly, but mm-hmm. we, we all believe in God and we, we worship in our own way. And I just, I don't know how to put it into words that, I mean, 
we know how the animals need to be cared for. Mm-hmm. We know how to take care of them, and we're there. We take care of the animals before we take care of ourselves, oh, usually. Yeah. So it's just it's just the way our lives are. I mean, the animals rule the, rule our lives, but we want them yeah. there. That calf can't feed itself. It can't water itself. It can't do anything. So you take care of them before they take before you take care of yourself. Yes. Because ultimately, they take care of you and the family. Yes. We've had this conversation with our eight year old numerous times that he needs to feed and water the animals before he feeds and waters himself and it's just something we want to instill into into our boys well and it's tough being a parent again i i (laughs) I project because i don't have kids but um i can imagine it's tough as a parent trying to instill uh goodness in a kid and trying to instill good behaviors and things and then have a child come to you and go well guess what i learned in sunday school today mom yeah I, I can't even, I, I, honestly, there's a, there's a part of me that would be like, you know what? No, we're going to have a come to Jesus talk right here. <laughs> um, Amen, sister. <laughs> well, you know what? We, we use words for good sometimes, but I'm not above using them for evil either. <laughs> I, uh, no, I, it's, well, first of all, think about what she just said. Yeah. Yeah. That on her farm, she teaches selfless action right something else comes before you it comes before your desires and before your needs and before your wants you're gonna get up at 4 30 mm-hmm. well why because something else demands it mm-hmm. that's something i now here comes my own opinion our society is sorely lacking in the teaching of selflessness and service to something else and secondly, there's no more beautiful image in the entire scripture than Christ as shepherd. Mm-hmm. And what do shepherds do? You may not, you may not work with sheep, but we all know the stories. In the best interest of the animals, they may put them in the sheepfold. They can find them. They may have to break a leg of an animal. They may, they may have to deal with an animal. But there's no more beautiful image than of the overseer of animals taking care of them for their own benefit. Yeah. And and that's what farmers do and the bargain God strikes with us is that as you as God gives you these animals to use joyfully and freely and as you take care of them you maximize their productivity so that in turn you can spread that benefit to more people. Hence I would argue the Bible you know, I know this to be true the Bible says whatever you do whether you eat and drink do it all as unto the Lord. Mm-hmm. So as you're out farming, if you have to if you have to farm on a Sunday afternoon, you can rejoice that it's an act of worship because you're taking the resources God has given you and you're spreading that joy and resource, let's say, to 120 other people who don't live on your farm. Mm-hmm. I view modern agriculture in America as a miracle that God has given us in a way to do more with less. And I think there's no more biblical concept than that one right there loving your neighbors as yourself and, and helping to do that by providing them with, with happy, healthy, safe food supply. We'll be back with the last part of our interview with Wes Jameson talking about his book, What Would Jesus Really Eat? But we want to remind our listeners that Sorghum U and Wheat U will be coming to the Kansas Star Event Center in Mulvane, Kansas, August 14th. It's the first time we're combining our popular Sorghum U and Wheat U into one main event. Register online at hpj.com. 
or call 1-800-452-7171. Come ride with us. So we're, we're starting to see more technology as far as gene editing. We're starting to see, uh, you know, CRISPR gene editing and things that can actually, you know, it, we know the genome, not just of plants, but of animals now. And we can go in and we can take out the gene that, that causes boar taint, right, Kayleen? Mm-hmm. We can make those adjustments for not just the the health of the animal, but to make the animal more palatable or to produce more muscle or, or whatever the production method is. Now, that's not expressly provided for in the Bible. I don't think we understood gene editing until a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. What, you know, and that's just... Now, the future is going to see more and more of those type of advancements where we can go in and tweak at a very tiny level. What what do farmers have in their back pocket there to, to say, I'm still doing God's work. I'm still according to the biblical methods. Is, does that fall under, you know, care for the animal and, and, and care for others? Yes. You, you have not only doctrine, but examples in the Bible. So it's called the creational mandate. So when God creates the garden, he places Adam and Eve there, and he tells them to work the garden. And the concept there is to develop it. They're not preservationists. They're productionists. They're to tend the garden. They're to grow things. They're to cre- they are to express the creativity of God in themselves through developing the garden. Okay, so that's a doctrine. It's called the creational mandate to work and develop the garden. Then there's lots of examples. Uh, for instance, Joseph, and the way he bred sheep for his own benefit. Uh, here's something I like to tell farmers. Uh, all food is genetically modified. Mm-hmm. There, are, there were no white leggards in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> there were no Holsteins. <laughs> it's just that we're used to those animals. We've been doing gen- Mendelian genetics and inter- intercrossbreeding and everything else. We've been manipulating the genome of animals and plants for thousands of years. It's nothing new. This technology is is no different conceptually. It's manipulating the genome of animals for human benefit, and that's just fine. Uh, there's no problem with that. People like to say, you know, you're playing God. Well, you can't play God. Only God can play God. But what you can rest assured is that you need, the Bible doesn't prohibit it. It does allow for genetic engineering, if you would, through interbreeding and crossbreeding. For the Christian, it's always a question of motive and effect. What is my motive for doing this, and what is the effect on others? If the motive is purely profit, and purely selfish, then you might want to question any technology you're using, like a combine. Mm-hmm. Remember, there were people that opposed mechanical combines for the very same reason they opposed gene editing. Uh, and if the effect on others is negative, other human beings, by the way, is negative, you might want to check it. The Bible says in the New Testament, all things are permissible for the Christian, but not, not all things are profitable, like morally and spiritually profitable. That's left up to the individual conscience of the believer to determine what's my motive, what's the effect on others, and is this profitable to me and others. But outside of that, by all means, by all means, uh, the Christian who is an animal scientist developing new genetic technology can rejoice and say, I'm expressing the creativity of God in creation by helping others. There's no need for a question of conscience. 
I I kind of agree with that. I've always been under the thought that God gave you these gifts and gave you the ability to think scientifically, think higher, and do something with your gifts and share them with everyone else. Um, what about conservation and endangered species and even hunting? What does the Bible say there? Well, now we're getting kind of far afield from meat animals, but I'm not thinking <laughs> about everything. You know, I've studied, I looked at the little bit, uh, hunting, obviously David was a hunter, hunting throughout the Bible. Uh, there, that's not a problem with hunting. Again, it's motive, why are you doing it, and the effect. Uh, if you're doing it merely to watch an animal die and to kill it slowly, I would say that's outside the realm that may be sadistic. But hunting is, per- is permitted, you can do so with joy. So when, you're, when your husband or boyfriend goes out on a, on a Saturday morning to dove hunt, they can do it and enjoy God's creation. Uh, as far as conservation, that would, I would believe, to fall, uh, uh, there's no term conservation in the Bible really. But it's under the idea of this stewardship that you really wanna leave things for the next generations. That's clearly a biblical concept. Uh, Now, you never worship the earth, right? Mm -hmm. The Bible clearly says you worship the creator, not the creation. But, yes, you want to conserve it. All of you as farmers and your families know this. You want to leave stuff better off for your children and grandchildren. And that's a very, very valid uh, point in the Bible, is the idea of, of using the resources God has given you to make them better for those around you. So from conservation, that's kind of the view. And as far as hunting, yeah, you, you know, you can go out and hunt with complete joy. Again, what's your motive for doing so? Uh, I, I, you know, I've, I've hunted, and I, I hunt some, and, you know, I'll see dads with their sons and daughters and moms with their sons and daughters who want to teach them responsibility, who, who want to show the taking of a life as a metaphor for what Christ did for us. Uh, and I didn't think this up myself. I was talking to some Indian Christians who said something has to die for us to live. Mm. So every time we kill an animal, it's like an image of Christ dying on the cross for our sins. We give thanks. God, thank you that you gave us this for us to be able to live. Something's got to die. We're going to kill something, son and daughter, for us to live. That's a sort of an allegory for Christ did on the cross. And so I think I think I think of all the communities in the U.S., agriculturalists or those who work the land and in the land are the most closely related to the lessons of Scripture, if not necessarily the text, the lessons of Scripture, these things about passing on an inheritance, stewardship, conservation, and using creation to teach lessons. And that's something that strikes me. I never grew up on a farm, uh, mm-hmm. and so when I'm around farmers now, I see that I see that quite right, widespread, and I'm, it makes me very happy. Wow. So, circling back to the book again, and and this was brought up by by one of my friends um, after I wrote the the article that announced the the book launch for the High Plains Journal. One of my friends online, she said, "I'm a little concerned about the fact that the book was funded by the Animal Agriculture Alliance." She said, I, I want to make sure that, you know, full transparency, did that color their message, Jenny? And, and I said, you know what, I'm going to try to talk to him and I'm going to ask that question. So full transparency, there was some funding, correct, from Animal Ag Alliance and I assume other funding resources. But, you know, we, we always say, who's, where's the follow the money type right, of thing. So, 
So maybe address that for her and anybody else that might be concerned that way. Okay, first, yes, the Animal Agriculture Alliance is a Washington, D.C. interest group that supports agriculture and supports agricultural companies and producers. They provided funding for the book. Mm -hmm. Yes, proudly so. They exist to protect agriculture. Uh, I view my calling from the Lord with the gifting I've been giving in my education. I believe agriculture, including high-efficiency agriculture, to be God-ordained. I believe it to be a noble profession that does good things for a lot of people. So really my life's calling uh, is to help advocate and defend and where and defend agriculture and where it's wrong to call it out. Mm-hmm. So really our interests intersected. Uh, I would have been speaking and thinking about this for years, and so the, Ag, the Animal Ag Alliance was willing to provide funding to write this book. And so my interest in this topic intersected with theirs. But I can tell you this, they did not have one iota of input into the content of the book, anything that was said in the book, or any of the arguments. They didn't see any of the book until after it was published. And for those who know Paul Copan, and particularly Walt Kaiser and Timothy Sal, these are not paid shills by industry. These people are scholars of long-standing reputation who don't take money for hire. So the reputation of the scholars themselves is above reproach. And secondly, the argument, I don't, you know, okay, fine. You know, the, the farmer the farmer planted the seed and gave fertilizer. Is the apple good? In other words, uh, the arguments themselves will stand the test of time. They can try to undermine the arguments in the book by saying it was bought and paid for by industry. Okay, that's fine. Are the arguments true? And the scriptures in church history will support that. So I, I'm proud that there are organizations out there, really for the first time, and I think you two will, will say this too, that are willing to actually tackle religion. Mm-hmm. Can you think of any other commodity group or any other any other production group that was willing to say, look, we've got to address this and to give a group of scholars uh, to assist with their funding to think about this and write about it. So, yeah, truth in advertising, that's what happened. Uh, so I would challenge anybody, rather than to dismiss the arguments outright, to read them, examine the scriptures, examine church history, and see if they're true. Because remember, all research is funded by somebody. Yep. The question of good scholarship is whether it withstands scrutiny. I, I just am so tickled that somebody is finally doing this. I remember about five or six or seven years ago or so, I was at a meeting of cattle producers, and this exact same topic was brought up by an industry person who said, guys, this is starting to happen. And you could hear crickets in the room because all of a sudden you brought the church into a, a business setting and, you know, farmers often, you know, there's, there's, there's just a separation of things, a separation of their lives. And they don't, you know, they don't cross their church into their, they don't bring their peanut butter into the chocolate kind of thing, you know. <laughs> but I think this was a, personally, and I, I hope, Kayleen, you agree with me, is I think this is a, a really needed and necessary text to have. I'm excited to get my copy. It's on order. <laughs> it should be, it should be arriving here shortly, I hope. But thank you so very much for for writing this, for bringing up the topic, for for starting the conversation. And that's what we hope we'll we'll, uh, start with this podcast. Is there anything that that we've forgotten to ask that you want to make sure, um, final parting thoughts for any of our listeners? 
Yeah, I'll just leave it this way. I have great respect and esteem for the farming and agricultural community in the United States. They've taken a be- they, they take a beating from every single angle of our society in many ways that is thankless. And I just want them to realize that they can feel good, in fact, have joy about what they're doing. And, and that's, that's one of my motivators, is it's not always right. There are bad things that happen, but the net sum is that it's a noble profession that's really unique in the United States. And I feel just so warm and, and, and thankful to farmers and agriculturalists. And I just want to tell them, you can do what you do with great joy in your heart and, uh, and a blessing from the Lord when you do it for the right reasons. And that makes me feel very good. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks a lot for talking to us today. Folks, remember, if you would like to order your copy, Mr. Jameson, where can they where can they find that copy? Initially, for the next two months, it's on discount at animalagalliance.org. After that, you can buy it. It'll be the rollout. The general release will be on Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble. book is titled, What Would Jesus Really Eat? Thanks again, Dr. Jameson, and we will be in touch, all right? You take care. Yeah, bless you and take care. Thank you. Wes Jameson for taking the time to chat with us for HPJ Talk. And don't forget, if you've read or heard something that strikes a chord with you, we want to hear it. So write to us at journal at hpj.com or hpjtalk at hpj.com. Or you can always call 1-800-452-7171. Next week's print issue of High Plains Journal is our livestock genetics issue. Be sure to watch for that in your mailboxes August 5th and look for additional content online anytime at www.hpj.com. Remember, you can subscribe for free to this podcast at hpj.com podcasts. You can also find us on places like iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you download podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at HPJ Talk for news and commentary throughout the week. We're also on Instagram. And you can always drop us a line at our email, hpjtalk at hpj.com. Thanks again for riding along with us, folks, as we bring ag news and commentary to you. And remember, as Dodge City's favorite lawman, Wyatt Earp, once said, fast is fine, but accuracy is everything. We'll see you on the trail. This has been a production of High Plains Journal, all rights reserved. Dirt road in a gooseneck, saddle up with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. The headlights on both ends of my day.